This podcast is brought to you by ThamesCon, bringing conventions to Oxford and London, including the Great Conjunction, the first ever dark crystal convention in the world. For more information, visit their website at www.thegreatconjunction.com. Another world, another time, in the age of wonder. You are listening to Trial by Stone. Trial by Stone! Dea, Tea, Dara, Tea. Your vital essence, the Dark Crystal. Kida, Kida. Come, come, see for yourself. Aru, Garu. How very interesting. Dea, Tea. I feel the song of Thra in my heart! Now go, you heroes of Thra! So, Randall, I just want to say thank you so much for being on Trial by Stone. Oh, I'm happy to be here, and I'm happy to be on trial. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, yeah. As, um, I'm going to ask you so many questions about Dark Crystal Law. No, I'm just kidding. But, um, of course, um, <laughs> but, but, but of course, you know... Um, uh, first off, I actually want to say, um, you know, congratulations. We, I mean, with the documentary, The Crystal Calls, um, the making of The Dark Crystal Age of Resistance. I know for a lot of fans like ourselves, I think that was like a, a really nice surprise when we, I think, had heard probably a couple months beforehand that there was going to be this uh, feature-length documentary on top of the 10 episodes. And I, and, and I and I really enjoyed the documentary. I thought it was a really fantastic, um, well made. Oh, so I just want to say, you know, from from my part, I, I really just want to let you know that I really enjoyed watching the uh, the documentary that that you produced. That's awesome. We really enjoyed making it, and it wasn't something that, <clears throat> you know, if you if you make a list of things that you think will be easy and things that will be difficult, this would have been one that I would predict would be difficult, and it ended up being you know, just a pleasure from end to end. They all have challenges, but it was nothing like what I would have imagined. You know, going on set like that, you think it could be a very closed set. It'd be maybe difficult to be accepted by people who are doing things that are, you know, quite often very private. But I think as we'll find out in this conversation, we were surprised in a way that was beyond pleasant. It was amazing in that regard. So I guess, you know, I'm actually just curious, like before talking about um, the documentary itself, I would actually like to know, like, how did you experience the Dark Crystal um, for the first time? The watching of the original film? Yeah, 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 yeah. Funny you say that. Uh, it, it really stands out in my mind. It was an enormously, uh, I, I don't want to say meaningful because I was, I was a, being a bit of a goof by the age that I was. I believe I was 17 when it came out. I went to the movie with all my friends on opening night. And I think you can imagine what the other movie was that opened that night. I believe it was E.T. E.T., yes, because they both came out <laughs> the same year. Yeah, yeah. I think so. Uh, and, and by the way, as I mentioned to you up front, I'm a little rusty on my history. It's been a while since I was deep in the Dark Crystal. But I do remember this screening so well. My friends and I all went. And we sat up in the front. I almost never sit in the front. I found it gothic and bizarre. And I loved the, the sounds. And that's what really stayed with me. It's scary and creepy. 
I get, uh, I actually have a little bit of puppet aversion. You know that I get that fear left over from a child. I, I'm, I find aversion to clowns and things that are masked and things that approximate, you know, the uncanny valley of a, of a figure. So I do get that. And so I, and that's why we went, I found it creepy, but I just loved the Skeksis and the, and the, the music of the mystics. Like I, I really enjoyed the sort of the bizarre and very British elements of it. And I remember having so much fun. We were singing along with the mystics, my friends and I, for oh, wow. years. Yeah. We did that together. <laughs> just, just doing the big, you know, the humming and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Yeah, it was very impactful in that regard. And I did find it creepy. Uh, I, I was, before we went on set, I was remembering that feeling. Like, will I have this feeling when faced with, you know, some of the creatures? And I had, there's something that I don't know if it's been in a documentary or been in public, I, and I can talk about it later, but there was a character that I actually interacted with, and it, and I did have a little flashback to that scared feeling. Oh wow, wow! And I mean, I, I, I'm actually I might as well bring it up. I mean, what what character was it, by the way? Just um, out of curiosity, that sort of lore. Oh, with lore, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah I had a, yeah. I had a. They were, you know, they were showing us how it worked. And if you remember, you see the in the film. And again, <clears throat> I might refer to things that weren't in the cut you saw. Like all the cuts feel like one cut to me. So. When you see Lore in that three-person team and there's a fourth person with the joystick, right, moving the, the head. Yes, yeah. I did a little scene. Like, I was having this all aimed at me, and it was really impactful. Like, I mean, for real. It, it's hard to believe how much more impactful some of these characters are when you're facing them. And that one in particular was very evocative, physically evocative. And I wasn't alone when I said it's, it was emotional to see it. It's, it's not like you well up or anything, but it's, you feel the, something seeing that character move. And, you know, Damo and the operators disappeared. And I was really looking at that character's face. It, it, it was powerful. And I, as I say, I flashed back. Yeah. 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 To all these, yeah, the years of the original film and just, yeah, just how creepy it really is. And, um, like that, that's another thing I totally agree about. Like with, with the score from, um, Trevor Jones was just, just, just incredible stuff. And, um, and even like with the show with, um, Daniel Pemberton and, um, again, incredible job with it as well. I, I, I gotta tell you, we sat with Daniel Pemberton <clears throat> in his space and my wife happened to be visiting during that shoot. And she's all, she's a teacher of young people and she was very, you know, she doesn't really if I did a, a franchise documentary to her, it's like, okay, whatever. Yeah, it's just you know, a job. Yeah. Not, <laughs> yeah. And, and she's not into it. She was really into listening to him. And when he played the music and we saw sequences, he was playing with music and, you know, the draining sequence and, and it, man, it was impactful. And he played us some of the soundtrack he was doing for the Beatles movie, you know, yesterday, I believe. And he played us some of the music for Into the Spider-Verse. Did I say the title properly? Now I'm checking everything I say. Uh, no, it's, uh, the I Spider think, yeah, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse? Yeah. The, yeah, the yeah. Spider-Man oh, animation. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Another great film. And yeah, he, he did yeah, great smile with that one. And yeah. Man, so powerful to be there and listen to him playing it. And he was super enthusiastic. I could I could watch a whole documentary about him 
and his love of that soundtrack, old and new, you know, you could tell he was so into it. Such a creative way to reproduce some of the interesting, very esoteric feelings that have to come out of a made-up universe. I was blown away by that. And so, I mean, I guess that's the thing. Like, um, like how did it all happen with yourself, like, you know, being involved, being part of the, you know, doing the do- documentary behind Age of Resistance? Was that something that you, you know, approached Netflix or Henson Company or did they come to you or, you know, how, how did that, that all worked out? It, yeah, it, it was a little of each sort of. So years ago, I did a documentary with we, like I, I work with Isaac Elliott Fisher and Mark Hussey are that we're the three primary Uh, whatever you want to call us, the many hat-wearing chefs and cooks and everything of definitive film. And we did a documentary on the history of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And one of our, I don't know, maybe you've seen it. It was on Netflix and different places. One of the first interviews that we did, if not the first interview of note, was with Brian Henson. Oh yes, so, yeah, because he was, um, because he was, uh, yeah, involved with. I mean, of course, with the the very first um, Teenage Mutant Mutant Ninja Turtles film, the '90s movie. Yeah, he had a he had quite a part to play in that movie, and and so did his father. It was very important that that Jim Henson came into that movie for a number of reasons, and Brian. So during that conversation, <clears throat> we really it, it it made the whole Turtles thing happen. If if Brian Henson hadn't agreed to talk to us, many other people wouldn't have <clears throat> chosen to talk to us because, you know, you start a documentary, you have no platform. I was a high school teacher, so no, nobody wanted to talk to us as well. They shouldn't. After that, I was thinking, you know, we had a really nice conversation with him and we got to know a few people at, at Henson. <clears throat> and I, um, I did reach out and there were two things I was interested in. One was Labyrinth. I'm an a huge David Bowie fan. And the other was Dark Crystal. And I didn't say anything about Dark Crystal. Uh, I mentioned Labyrinth, which was not at the time. And still, it, it, it's very difficult to imagine Labyrinth being read in any way. And I think, yeah, the same for Dark Crystal. But Dark Crystal was, there were things happening always. It was always, you know, there was always going to be this and there was going to be that, you know. Uh, Gennady Tartakovsky, I think, and there were some animated plans throughout yeah. how long ago it oh, all yeah. started. It was, yeah. Right? It's just such a long time with de- development. Like I think, yeah. I mean, like you mentioned, I think even in an, even in the documentary that, you know, that they had always plans to try and bring dark crystal back, but it was just such a bit of a struggle, I guess. Um, you know, going through so many directors or, you know, whether it's financial things or, you know, who knows what that sort of, you know, just push things so much more. And the boom, the boom studios titles were coming out. I knew about the comic books. You know, we go to comic on for our business and you would at San Diego and you would see things at the San Diego comic con that would make you remember, Oh yeah. Like this is not gone, but there's something about it that makes it very difficult to imagine. So I didn't hope that it would be dark crystal, but dark crystal would be a perfect example in my estimation at the time, of going deep behind something that was very closed and very unknown to me. I mean, I had seen the movie and I hadn't seen the documentary that came later that was very well regarded. So long story short, 
I did not pursue it because things didn't didn't materialize with Henson. We moved on to do other things. We did a Dark Crystal documentary, or sorry, uh, um, He-Man Masters of the Universe documentary. And there was um, an executive at Netflix is a huge fan of He-Man. And we were introduced in a very funny way. He actually appears in the He-Man documentary because he was at a pop-up shop at he at the um, a He-Man shop at Comic Con 2015, I believe. And he was first in line, and we were shooting him coming in a pop-up store to get Skeletors and everything else. Coincidence, he became the executive on Dark Crystal. So because of him. We sold the He-Man documentary, a licensing deal, not a sale, sorry, that licensing deal at Netflix. And people at Netflix saw that documentary, and they at the time were however long into thinking about how to approach Dark Crystal. And this executive, whose name is Ted Biaselli, Ted Biaselli, I think, saw how we could apply the thinking that we use, which is a there is a structure that we use again and again, not to reproduce the same movie, but an approach, a way of thinking. And he had someone who, with whom he spoke and they made a plan and they reached out and they said, if you were going to do a couple of different things, what would you do? And that was one of the choices. And I believe the other was not the choice, if you know what I mean. I, I spoke about two things and they were really thinking about Dark Crystal. <clears throat> so I created some pitch documents and I was very uh, hopeful. I was very interested Again, because it, it is entirely constructed and for us to shoot, think how much more exciting material can be generated when everything has to be built. And, and that's really something that we approached as if we get this, this will be unparalleled for us and maybe for us as well. I mean, because with, with the documentary, um, I guess, you know, with that format in a way, because... I feel like, you know, with making of documentaries, sort of anything can sort of happen, I guess, you know, especially if you're being on set filming, uh, behind the scenes stuff, or even with interviews. H how does it work for you? Like, um, do you sort of try and like, you know, have everything, like sort of have that, you know, the structure to start off with, but then I think as time goes on, like things evolve much more than you kind of realize. So there are, this is, perhaps idiosyncratic of, of us and, and maybe mostly idiosyncratic of me specifically. I feel that anything I pitch is so suppositional that I'm afraid to pitch in detail in a sense, because I don't want to be held to something that we know will be transmitted through months of change. Right? So it's a game of telephone you, you're playing with yourself and with the people involved. <clears throat> so to, to my point, I've generated this method, and the method involves coming up with kind of structures that would be like chapters or modules, and they're approach plans. So I'll break the, the way of making the movie into targets or benchmarks. So with Dark Crystal, one of the things might be you talk about legacy and then they get to decide, do we want them to go deeply into legacy? The second thing would be creators and creation. And how deep do they want me to go into creators and creation? Another might be, 
artisan crafts people, process driven. So you know what I mean? I break it into these sort of, I don't, I hesitate to say chapters or chunks, but it's a way of thinking and sorting material. And the other thing that I do is I create these thematic structures. So with Dark Crystal, we wanted to talk about everything being handmade. Everything is constructed. And it was very important that we show the people who are putting their just everything they've got into making this imaginary place come to life. So when you think about these theses, these kind of psychological ideas that you have, like we wanted to show that Brian Froud is he's getting material in that world. He believes in that world and he's just taking that material out and showing it to us. He does not think you heard in the doc. He's not crafting it. He's a visionary. He's seeing it and then trying to find it in a way that we can all see it with him. So again, we, we bake out these ideas. And then when we go to make the documentary, I don't use any checklists or notes when I'm interviewing people. I know what I want to hit psychologically. I mean, it sounds very airy-fairy, and I apologize, but I, I, I want to have a very meaningful conversation and be very present in everything that person says. So the example would be we're interviewing Brian Froud in his sacrosanct creative space. <clears throat> I, I don't believe anyone had been there. I don't know that his family goes in there. And he allowed us in. And once you're there, you imagine it, it is sacrosanct. And so my approach, I'm not a, 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 the type of person who goes in and I'm a giant fan and I'm going to have a checklist like, oh, I have to get him to do this. Oh, I have to get him to do that. I am 100% present in what he's saying and he's thinking about and what he wants to talk about. And then I have to be facile in direction. I have to know about the 60s because he's going to talk about the 60s. I have to know about the 70s. You see what I'm getting at? That I build these runnels or these constructions on the sides, these parameters. And then within that context, I can go anywhere and talk about anything because it's it's Brian's decision making that we're following. And so that's why you know, people at Netflix could have said, no, 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 what question? So example, Taryn Egerton, they say, what questions are you going to ask Taryn Egerton? Because his people want to know. Well, I generated a bunch of questions. And then I'll be honest, I caught Taryn as he comes off the elevator. And I just said, and he's with his people. And I said, just so you know, that question sheet, we will discard it. We're just going to have a conversation. Visible relief over his body. He he was like, oh thank God! He just wanted to talk. Yeah, and yeah, and especially like, I mean, I I think that really helped. I, I think in a way, like you know, the way that he was describing, you know, Dark Crystal as an odyssey, and he was, you know, in, you know, talking about the opening scene of the of of the show. Like, it, it just wasn't like a, you know, it wasn't just a generic sort of, oh, here's a question and answer sort of approach. That that you know, there's just some, I don't know, just some flow to the conversation that, um. You know, and especially like, yeah, with Brian Froud, it's just like, yeah, it's just that nice flowing, I guess, uh, approach, which I think well, really worked. Yeah. Yeah. It's this, it's this idea that it, it, for me, it's very organic. It's not from the outside in, it's the inside out. I try and get into the center 
by thinking about thematics and thinking about archetypes and thinking about these deeper elements and then allowing the documentary to flow from those. And, and it could be, again, an executive could look at that and say, oh, come on, you know, they, they, they maybe would not feel comfortable with that. Tell us exactly what you're going to do. Well, I can furnish that to them. But I also say, just so you know, you know, we're, somebody's going to say something and it's going to change everything. And sure enough, in that Taryn Egerton interview, you know, there were a number of Netflix people there. When there's a celebrity, you know, people want to be there for any number of reasons, for all kinds of security and whatever. So they were all there. Afterwards, one of the people from, I believe, publicity turned to me and said, uh, sorry, turned to the people who were with us, not me. I was just there. And she said, this changes our marketing. Like we are getting new plans about things we want to focus on, things we want to hit because of what Taryn said, not because of what I said, not because of what we decided in advance. Taryn's enthusiasm was sparked and it spurred changes in some of the direction. And so that's that feeling of when you know the deeper elements and you can speak fluently about, about the subject matter, like I had to know a lot of stuff in order to ask those questions, then you can go in whatever direction they need. And once we've elicited enough, well, trust, I guess, confidence from a distributor or executives, they allow us to go and, and do that. And by the way, so did Taryn, so did Lisa Henson, so did all the people we spoke with. They wanted to see material up front, but then once we got there and they felt, oh, comfortable, and this is a conversation and I feel safe and nobody's, you know, trying to trick me or whatever silly thing a checklist interview would would generate and so i mean when you got involved um like with the show um i think did, did that sort of happened um like when, when it got the green light or, or or did you get um on board like sort of during the middle of the production um for age of resistance oh you're quite right <laughs> age of resistance was up and moving well before we came aboard um in the sense that you know it how do I say this? It would be very expensive to stud a team like ours into a production from the earliest phase. Um, you know, the example, and by the way, they should. I'm not saying Netflix should or Henson should. Star Wars does this, right? There is a me and there is an Isaac and a Mark on Star Wars or perhaps several teams of the of this type. And they're shooting throughout. And that's an expensive proposition. Now, Disney can throw money at any problem almost, or so it appears. But for a number of other people, they would say, we can't afford to do that. And quite frankly, many people in positions of authority would not have the same idea of its value, right? They wouldn't immediately see how it could convert to a bottom line or whatever you want to say. So all that aside, we came in. The, the planning around how we came in was geared to what they were shooting, when they were shooting it, you know, when was most economically feasible for us to be part of that, how we would get access to different things. You know, it was very logistics based and you really need to schedule everything so that you're catching, you know, what, I don't want to say highlights per se, but you just have to be very mindful of how you spend money that other people give you to show them at their best because that's what's happening yeah because i mean especially like you know not not being you know from the get-go that i guess you know you would have to get 
quite a lot of like material from Henson or even like, you know, saw some behind the scenes footage from whoever was, you know, filming at the time. Um, that I guess must have been a big bit of a benefit, um, you know, with the documentary. Yeah, I mean, to Louis, Louis's partner, Cameron, his wife, the mother of his children yes, yeah. there, yes, Cameron was an associate producer on the series, and she and her, I believe she had a friend, Pilot was the friend's name, and I apologize for not remembering the last name. They were recording material because they were enthusiastic. So some of the material we got was literally just iPhone material that they shot because they thought it was awesome. And that's incredibly helpful. And, and by the way, you can't get enough of that, right? Like from a documentary perspective, if somebody handed us hours and hours of it, we'd be delighted. Um, but with the other side of the coin that, to that is we would love to shoot as much prestige as possible. So you can tell potentially when it's professionally shot by Isaac, our DP, who is also an operator. And you see these beautifully composed shots. It looks very nice. And it's reflecting well on the incredible production design on the set. And so, you know, you just try to balance it out. You don't want to have too much that looks spur of the moment, spontaneously shot with, a, you know, a different format camera or a phone or something. You, you just have to balance it out and always ground it with, the composed, you know, beautifully shot material, if possible, which is why it, yeah, costs more to have people like us there. We, we, we are doing the, you know, the best job we can, and that requires gear and people and so on. What was it like, sort of, you know, you know, you working on this documentary, and then you finally get the chance to, you know, to, you know, you interview people like yeah, like with Brian Froud and and Lisa Henson and so many other people. And then it's then to the point where it's like, all right, you're gonna, you know, be on the set of of the Dark Crystal Age of Resistance. Like, um, well, what was it like, sort of, just that, that experience, just being on the set, and and what scenes, um, you know, or what I guess what locations that they were that you sort of were able to to check out, like when you got the chance to, you know, do some filming for the documentary in London. I'll isolate a few aspects that. That may seem surprising or, or, or rather what I, first of all, when you go on the set, it is, it's not just a set because it is also this giant workspace with artists and crafts folk all over the place, like people thatching roofs and building materials out of wood and styrofoam and fiberglass and resin shops and, you know, making puppets and maquettes and every every conceivable type of craftspeople you can imagine. By, by the way, up to and including a, a wonderful kitchen with amazing food. Like, I mean, it is a hive of activity of all sorts. And so to first walk in, it is overwhelming in size. And, you know, we were sort of guided through in the, the first look I had was, I believe, at night. The guys... I flew in early and then took the guys around at night and it, 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 you realize, Oh, this, this is not just walking on a set. There's a set. There are three large constructed, enormous sets in these huge rooms. And they look like you think it looks like it looks like another world. And so some people I was told, it's not my story to tell, but 
you may have talked to someone who went on set and wept. Some people cried. They were so moved by the way it looked. It, it is transportive. For me, it was gobsmacking. Your jaw drops and you can't believe the size and scale for all the reasons. Then you see puppets on stands all around looking incredibly detailed and realistic and frightening and amazing and beautiful, right? They're, and they're in... Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, and I remember, I think I remember like even seeing that shot. I think that, I think, you know, that was in the documentary, but first appeared, I think, in that San Diego comic-con preview just the shot of all the golflings yes. you know, in their stands yes and just, yes just the amount of detail that just went into oh you know, yeah creating everything for the show is just yeah unlike anything so that feeling is it's like i don't want to say it's vertiginous it was but it was like there's a door that opens that you didn't know was there and you realize okay we have so much more work to do here than we thought. Even if we knew we had a ton to do, we had more. And then we can't shoot a bad shot. Like there's, you you would close your eyes and fling a camera around and you could pull a beautiful still out of that. Like it was impossibly beautiful everywhere. And, and that, that was really amazing. By the way, it's a workspace. So there are lots of bad angles, but it's all interesting, right? Yeah, just, just the, the visuals and, yeah. People everywhere. The second thing that I'll say that is maybe surprising, it, it's, it's the UK, and the UK is, England, Britain, is rich in history and craftsmanship, craftspersonship and art. And, you know, there's a giant rich history there. And somehow it was reflected in the work that we saw, the people that we met, and even when we went to Brian Froud's home and when we shot in, um, we were able to go to Jim Henson's office, you could feel not just the weight of history, but the the respect and the the power of it. So the, I guess the magic of it, you could really feel it. And, and this wasn't necessarily baked into the things, it was the people. You've rarely been on a set where people are kinder, more family atmosphere you know, having tea time and sharing sandwiches together. And it just felt like truly, it felt like a connected group of people who cared about the same thing. And that was overwhelming, that sensibility, that to feel that community and then to be welcomed into that community. I can't tell you how amazing that was. And the third thing that I'll point out is we got in a car and we drove out to Brian Froud's, which is out in Dartmoor. And that was magical to, to see where he and his family believe the fairy folk live, where they're inspired to, to, you know, capture the feelings that they see there and to put them into paint and, and wood and, you know, color and shape and texture and cloth and whatever material they use. And to be in that space and shooting, you know, you could see some of our shots, drone shots and some textures and, the stream and all of that, like there was magic there as well. And we could feel the ley lines, if you want to call it that. That was amazing. That was a really delicious weekend, <laughs> truly. Yeah. And I guess you could see, I mean, going to Dartmoor, just 
probably just the, sort of the landscapes that, that oh. probably yeah inspired you know all these works as well you know with mm-hmm. crystal and labyrinth and so many other things yeah and we climbed up hound's tour you know you i mean you see the shot uh, we went up hound's tour and like when you know the provenance of the place is so much more resonant so that's what was happening and we went there several months after starting so you know we didn't stay in england we would go to england for a few weeks come home go to england for another few weeks and come home and i believe this was our second or third trip so we'd been exposed to so much by then so it loaded all the environments with so much more information and that made them more powerful so uh, how much time did you get to have like um being on the set to to film sort of as much as you could like you know for that during that production period um with age of resistance it was much, far much, far much. It was far less and much less than you would think and far less and much less than we would have liked. So perhaps for a total of six, seven, maybe eight weeks. Okay, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, over the course of several months. And then there were, we went back to get uh Perhaps a year after our first trip there, we went back and got Simon Pegg, Natalie uh, Dormer, and Daniel Pemberton, you know, more London-based. Yeah, we were down in London. Uh, The studio is outside of the city, so we were out there for a while. And then we shot some stuff in Los Angeles, which I think you can see there. We're in the Creature Shop in Burbank, and that was throughout that. Yeah, so, you know, perhaps eight or nine, maybe 10 trips, 11, 12 trips, something like that. And in each case, you know, there's time in between to come back and see what we have and what do we need and see how it fits the theses that we've been generating. We, we've, you know, telling the story about this um, doc- documentary. I mean, was, you know, once you had it all done, you know, was, was there moments from the documentary that you would have liked, you know, that you might have were going to put in the documentary, but just couldn't do it, whereas because of time or, or whatnot? Uh, we had a, a longer first draft, of course, a first cut. I mean, I speak like a writer. Uh, a longer first cut that I think some people really liked. Louis really liked it. And we had developed more upfront. So when you started the documentary, it was a slower build. And really, you know, we wanted to, I don't know, the onion idea, peeling the onion doesn't exactly work, but we didn't want to show puppets for a while. We wanted you to want to see them so badly that you would kind of be so burned up by watching that you would think, when are we going to see these? When are we going to see these? And then there was this review and quite fairly on the part of, of some of the executives, they said, listen. People have just seen the series. You're not first, right? Like the series will come first. And we didn't know that when we started cutting. So they've seen these puppets. So don't spend so much time, you know, building to a reveal. And that was kind of revelatory. But it also, you know, that's at the point where you realize, oh, we're we're crafting this like they see it first. So we're kind of, you know, building this slow burn and teasing it out. And, and that was all. And so I, I do miss that. And as I say, I think that Louis Leterrier really liked that because he thought 
you know, respect to our patients and to our our willingness, you know, to to try and craft something like that. And and that was nice to have his reaction. But of course, once we realize where we fit into the whole the whole thing, oh yeah, we did we didn't we weren't able to maintain that. And so that meant that many things in that sequence were shortened. And uh, I'll go back to Daniel Pemberton. We spent more time with him than we were able to show. Uh, again, you saw the documentary, or sorry, you saw the series, so you heard all the music. But when we were him, we hadn't heard it yet, right? Yeah, yeah. Like you'd have no idea, like, well, probably like, you know, even with some, I mean, probably with a theme, you know, you probably get an idea. Okay, that's the main theme, but some of the tracks, you, you, you know, you may not know, like, in what context or, or whether, um, I mean, you probably, you know, describe the scenes to you, but it's like you don't, I guess you don't see it or, you know, see, you know, when you see the visuals and then the music, you're like, oh, wow. Like, <laughs> yeah. And, and how he constructed them. So a lot of the, you know, he uses different sorts of organic materials, not always instruments. So he was going into detail there. We spent a lot of time at uh, D neg, double negative there, shooting some some of that work and, and that was really interesting. We could have delved into that more. Every single puppeteer, I would have loved to have shown them at work. It's just, you know, those beautiful slow motion shots of them doing their jobs. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I, I don't know that I would get tired of seeing that. It just felt so interesting to see these people. What they do is so physically demanding to see the costume of a mystic be applied to Ollie. It, it is incredible. And the amount of physical, just strength and, you know, dexterity. Yeah, the weight of it all, yeah. <laughs> oh, it's incredible. 23 pieces, and he has to squat the whole time. There was training to be able to maintain that position for any length of time. It, it's staggering. And so you could just, you could go into that in such detail. I'm even talking about it in such detail, I realize. Yeah. So yeah, we were, we were interested in it because of what it asked of a person involved. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's just, um, just the amount of work that they, they, they just put into, you know, to bring those characters to life. It's just unlike anything. And, um, I, I mean, I, well, I am actually curious, you know, I mean, because, you know, you worked on the documentary, you had probably had access to so much material, you know, you know, for, for the documentary. And, and what was it like? I mean, documentary was, you know, sort of all made and all finished. And then you got the chance, you know, then, you know, got to watch like all the 10 episodes sort of for the first time. Um, like, what was your thoughts? Like, yeah, when you just like finally being able to, to watch, you know, the entire show. I could not uh, separate my... I was too in it. You know what I mean? It was very difficult for me not to think about the other side of the camera the whole time, which is is probably my enthusiasm for what I knew was happening subsumed my ability to just be swept up in it properly. Isn't that a strange? But But I have that with everything, by the way. I have it with every time we do a documentary, I can't disarticulate the the material i'm watching from the people who are making it yeah and that's a flaw in my part it's not because the the um end product is any less transporting it's that i'm so in it i'm so 
like I'm thinking about Becky. I'm thinking about Ollie. I'm thinking about them. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm, all the people I'm that worked on the show. Are just yeah, yeah, yeah. And I can't get I can't get out of the way. I I just keep going. Oh my god. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Like I just keep cycling that. And so then there'll be how many scenes have gone by, and I'm like, wait a minute, I missed the dialogue. Like it's so strange. Yeah, it's not good. It's it's it's. I'm a bad watcher of things <laughs> as a result. Yeah. Uh, that's right yeah. but that, by the way i will say it is also a strength because that that allows me to be very i don't get swept up by my own films i'm analyzing them as i'm watching them right it's a way of thinking that's not good and and is useful at the same time like with the documentary i mean of course you got to interview you know with so many people you know that worked on the show was there anyone that you that you kind of like oh would you know wish i was able to interview you know him or her or um, you know about with the um with the making of the documentary. Oh, it, someone that I missed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Mark Hamill. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With right? the voice of the yeah, <laughs> Skek yeah. Tech. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would have loved. I don't know if you've ever. Do you watch any British TV? Do you know Clem Fandango? If I say Clem Fandango, do you know Toast? Oh of yeah, London? I do. Y- yes. No. Um, Toast of London. Um. Yeah. Uh. Brilliant. Brilliant show. I, I okay. like. Okay. Cause so, that, that, uh, who is it? Uh, Matt Berry. Yeah. Cause that was right, from, cause I got into his, uh, it was from the IT crowd. Yes. And then after that, it's like, Oh, I gotta check his other work. And it's like, I, um, a toast of London pop. I'm like, I gotta watch this. And yeah, such a hilarious show. And yeah. Love. And, you know, know, and I actually, Shazad, rem- and I actually remember Latif, right? Yes, yes, yes. And, yeah, um, I, I, I remembered. Yeah. And I remembered, um, like when, they announced like all the the cast and stuff and looking up at his name. Cause I'm like, I, it just didn't occur to me, but it's like when I was like Google apps on the actors or what they've done, I'm like, Oh, he's Clint Fandango. <laughs> you know, and so, I was so, so yeah. keen to interview him. Yeah. Natalie Emmanuel. I would have loved to have interviewed her. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Sigourney Weaver. Right. I could do this all day. Aquafina. I'll say this. There are people who are in this documentary who are, people of color, right? People that I rarely get to get in in documentaries I've done because it is the province of old white men. So much culture from the 70s and 80s, right? Yeah, yeah. And I am always, it may sound bad the way I'm wording it, I'm an old white man. Anytime I get a chance to speak to someone who's outside of that venue of the old white guys that created the turtles, the old white guys that created He-Man, the old yeah. white guys that created Conan the Barbarian. You see what I mean? Yeah. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Just uh, yeah, just uh, having that you know that just really showcasing the diversity. I mean, because even like Dark Crystal is such a diverse you know. Exactly. Well, you know, I mean, with with the Gelfling clans, you know, they're all very different um right. from each other so yeah no i totally i totally get your point about yeah, it yeah, and, like... and i was i was very i was excited when i spoke with natalie dormer uh she had a tattoo and the tattoo said fear is the mind killer and i said you're a fan of dune and she's a nerd and and that kind of that kind of thing is thrilling for me i want to talk to people who don't look like me who aren't like me but like what i like and I like to get that disparate, you know, a, a bunch of profiles of people who don't match the old white guy thing that we all think about with, you know, these old comic or whatever you want to say, old fashioned nerdy stuff. 
And I want to know, how did they get into it? Like, what does it feel like to be, uh, let's say, a, a young black comic creator right now grappling with some of this that's gone on for years and like wants to crack in? Those are stories I would love to be involved in. And, you know, being an old white guy, I love that different point of view. So I was really looking forward to that. But it yeah, yeah. For a number it of didn't didn't happen. Yeah. No. Yes, yeah. Number of And also, I mean, um someone who was who I thought was sort of <laughs> missing from the documentary, of course, was um the director himself, um uh with Louis. So like was that was that something that like he he just you know what didn't want to didn't want to, you know, have too much focus on him being in the documentary or like I'm gonna tell you something funny. The Hollywood Reporter put out, it was one writer, it wasn't the entire magazine, a, a writer at the Hollywood Reporter put out a, a a list of what I believe it was the 10 best performances of the year. And he included Louis Leterrier's appearance in our documentary. There was, and I was super charged by that. There was an effort made, and it was mutually an agreement between, at first, myself and Louis. He said, I, I want, I, I, do, I do not want to have a sit-down interview where I explain my thinking. He said, do it another way. So he said, I will give you total access. Your camera operator can sit on my lap, right shoulder to shoulder with me, with my shooter, you know, Eric. And, and dude, it's impossible that a director would be so welcoming and so open. He laid everything bare. So we got to show him doing exactly what he does, just the way he does it. He did not spare anything. He invited us to Skywalker Ranch. We weren't able to go, but we could have gone up to Skywalker Ranch to see the sound mix. Like he, things that you don't you don't have the luxury to see, you can't see. He welcomed us into, and and once we knew that was happening, it was really exciting not to have a sit down where then he has to explain his thinking that's not yeah. what he wants to do no no look no. at my thinking watch yeah. my thinking yeah see and, it I, in action. And, and i mean there was definitely some great moments like from him like in a documentary like you know when he was on set i think you know he came you know to you guys and camera sort of saying about how you know when you're watching the show you you know you you know you go and try you know you want to forget that that these are puppets sort of thing that you know the, these are creatures it, it even just seeing, you know, just, just him, just him directing on set, you know, uh, the whole, I think the, um, the battle of the stone of the wood when he's trying to, you know, um, coordinate sort of, you know, or getting his ideas across to the production team of, you know, what was going to, you know, happen, I guess, you know, the layout for, for the scenes and stuff. So yeah, all that stuff was, yeah, really, really incredible stuff. And just, just, yeah, just showcasing just, all the work that yeah that he was doing and and um but yeah yeah so no which was really interesting yeah it becomes a decision that you make once you realize he feels he feels that it's it's a reductive way for him to address what he's doing once he makes that comment it hit me immediately oh okay well i know exactly what we're going to do and and he instructed us or rather created the conditions under which we were able to do it once once we realized what he wanted to do the solution became obvious yeah show don't show don't tell 
So we'll probably have to wrap up, but um, I, I guess Randall, I just want to say, you know, thank you so much for being on, on the podcast and uh, you know, again, you know, thank you for, you know, for making the documentary. Uh, it was, it was a bit of a surprise for, for the fans and, and myself. Um, but also for me, it's, it definitely um, stands, stands very well as, you know, one of the, one of my sort of favorite documentaries of all time, you know, placing alongside like, you know, as a you know filmmaker, I mean, you know, I loved you know the documentaries. You know, like the Star Wars, the beginning, the episode one, or the you know you got your Lord of the Rings extended edition. You know, those behind the scenes stuff, and and World of the Dark Crystal, of course. But your one was um, it was really great that you were able to really get um really in depth. You know, with um, you know, we've really just showcasing the world of Dark Crystal for for the modern era, I guess, <laughs> in that way. So again, yeah, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Oh, thank, thank you for wanting to talk to me. I'm always happy to talk, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> always happy to talk about our process. And we're enthusiastic about the docs we do, not because of our documentaries, but because of the subject matter. So it's always fun to talk about. If you'd like to get in contact with the show, you can do so at darkcrystalpodcast at gmail.com. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Dark Crystal Podcast. Follow us on Instagram at Dark Crystal Podcast and on Twitter at Dark Crystal Pod. If you'd like to support the show, subscribe to the podcast, write a review on Apple Podcasts and consider being our Patreon supporter at patreon.com forward slash Dark Crystal Podcast. Thank you all so much and stay tuned for the next episode of Trial by Stone. This podcast is brought to you by ThamesCon, bringing conventions to Oxford and London, including the Great Conjunction, the first ever dark crystal convention in the world. For more information, visit their website at www.thegreatconjunction.com.